And all you need to do is remember Revelation 1.1 that in the opening verse of this book, he said this book is being communicated. The King James has signified. I like that. Signified. It's being given in signs. And so our job is to find out what does this sign mean and then you literally believe what it means. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 19 of the Revelation, looking at the account of what will one day be Jesus' second coming. This vision given by Christ to the Apostle John shows Jesus on a white horse and his eyes are a flame of fire. There are many other components to this vision, and as we return to Dr. Brogy, he talks about the last trumpet which will be heard at the time of the rapture. And we are not to be misled by some who say this trumpet will be at the second coming, and thus Christians will go through the tribulation. Jesus is going to sound the last trumpet. Right now we are in a spiritual war. We wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. But the trumpet will sound, and we are going to be called home. Now, there's another trumpet that Jesus mentions concerning not the rapture, but the second coming, and it's called a great trumpet. And so some people think, oh, there's this great trumpet, there's this last trumpet. And since the great trumpet happens at the end of the tribulation, it must mean, therefore, that Christians will go through the great tribulation. No, that's not what it teaches. Not to mention the trumpet called the great trumpet is not even the last trumpet sound in Scripture. In fact, trumpets will be sound all the way through the thousand-year reign of Christ, as the Old Testament prophets affirm, and as we will discuss when we come to the 20th chapter. The trumpet of the rapture is the last trumpet. And remember when Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15, in chapter 14, he has just spoken of a trumpet. Of course, in the context, he's talking about people who are speaking in tongues. And by the way, the tongues of the New Testament are so far different than the gibberish that is spoken today. It's no miracle today, and you depreciate the work of God the Spirit when you try to equate the two. The tongues of today are no different from the tongues that were spoken by pagan cults in the second and third century before Christ. No, there's only one passage in all the Bible where tongues are elucidated. It's Acts chapter 2, and they were real languages. But Paul said, if God gave you the miraculous ability to speak a language that you'd never learned, and he did this so that revelation before the Bible was completed could be given, and then someone didn't interpret the tongue, he says, well, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for the battle? Listen, there's a certain sound that called you to the battle. There's another sound that would call you out of the battle. And of course, he doesn't even explain it to these Greeks because they understood the context. And so when he speaks here of the last trumpet, they're being called from the battle and we are going to be brought home to be at rest with the Lord. That's what we have to look forward to. It is a great day, but until that time, we are to be watching. Now, here's the big picture again, just to put your minds in the scale of the whole Bible. Right now, God is building His church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Now, there are amillennialists today who say, well, the church in the Old Testament was Israel, and we are the new Israel, and God's done with the Jewish people. 
That's what Augustine thought. He got it from Origen, and Origen didn't want to speak of, you know, the church having a king who will literally come and rule on the earth because that would be a king in competition to the king that ruled in his day, and he could lose his head over it. So they adopted kind of a replacement theology. But no, Jesus said, I will build my church. It was not yet in existence. And if you take my course in ecclesiology, it's not some vague day. You can pinpoint the exact time the church began. The New Testament brings another pas- a number of passages together. The church began on the day of Pentecost. This is the church age. God is building His church. In one of these days, maybe today, the last member of the bride will believe, and the last trumpet will be sounded. And will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's called the rapture. And it will begin shortly thereafter a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. While that's unfolding on the earth, there's a judgment of Christians in heaven. Heaven won't be the same for every believer. Some are more faithful than others. And God will take that into account at the judgment seat of Christ. But while that is happening in heaven, the darkest time in human history is unfolding upon the earth. And one of the functions is to bring Israel to faith, and they will say, they'll call out, blessed is He, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. They will acknowledge He is Messiah. That day is coming. What a glorious day. And the Jews during this seven-year period will lead the world in preaching the gospel, and every tribe and tongue and nation will hear, and then the end will come. What we've been trying to do for 2,000 years, God is going to pull off in that seven-year period, and then Jesus will come, not in the air. We meet Him in the air, but at the second coming, He comes to the earth. It's not by accident in this passage. There's no mention of the translation of the saints. There's no mention of us meeting Him in the air because He is coming to the earth. And then he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, there will be the second resurrection. First and second resurrection speak of two programs God has. We'll study this in the 20th chapter. The first resurrection, of course, begin with Christ, the first to come out of the grave. After that, a handful of Old Testament saints with him. Then the rapture. Then at the end of the seven-year period, all the Old Testament saints will be raised. All those who died during the tribulation, their bodies will be raised. But at the second resurrection, only unbelievers will be raised, and they'll be raised with a body that is suited for hell. Now, if you remember, all the way back in Revelation 4.1, after these things, John wrote, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. We call that the rapture. The door is opened, and the church is gone. The church is dominating chapters 2 and 3, but they're nowhere mentioned from chapters 4 through 18. Why? Because the church is not here. And you do not see the church again until the 19th chapter when we come back with the Lord Jesus Christ for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this, by the way, fits perfectly with the promise Jesus made to the church at Philadelphia. Let me dust off your minds with that verse. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. By the way, you're not saved by perseverance. But if you are saved, you will persevere. Perseverance is a fruit of salvation. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's an hour of testing, the Bible speaks, that will come upon the whole earth. There has never been an hour of testing in all of the 6,000 years of recorded history we have. 
that has ever come upon the whole planet. Jesus said, that day is going to come. And he said, I will keep you from the hour of testing. It's the preposition ek. It means out of or away from. Jesus does not say, I will keep you through the hour of testing or I will keep you in spite of the hour of testing, or I will keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. No, I will keep you out of from the hour of testing. Now, if Jesus wanted to convey to the church that they would be protected during the tribulation, he couldn't have said it any more plainly than he did in this verse. And if he wanted to, be, if he wanted to affirm that he would just watch over them through the tribulation, he would have used different pronouns. He would have used the word dia. I'll save you through the tribulation. That's not what he says. And by the way, this promise to the church of Philadelphia is meaningless if he's promising to keep them through their tribulation because no one exists in the church of Philadelphia. In fact, in this city, today in Turkey, there aren't any Christians. It would be a meaningless promise because all these people have been dead for nearly 2,000 years. Well, how is he going to keep the promise? Because there's two sides to the rapture. There's the living saints that are translated, but absent from the body, present with the Lord, the Lord will bring with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep. Their spirits are in heaven. They're given some kind of an intermediate body. He will bring with him from heaven. The, the spirit in heaven will be reunited with the body in the grave. Up from the grave they will come. They'll rise first. They need a head start. They're six feet under. They'll come up first. Then those of us who are alive will meet the Lord in the air and will be forever changed. For the Lord himself, listen to this, will descend from heaven with a shout and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we shall always be with the Lord. The church will literally disappear. The door in heaven will be opened. And so again, the fact that they are absent in chapters 4 through 18 is not at all by accident. Listen, before God executes his wrath, he removes his people. He's only in the fullest way executed wrath on the earth on two occasions. One in Noah's day, and what did he do? He put Noah and his family safely in the ark. And the other occasion was in Lot's day, and he took Lot and the few believers in his family and put them safely out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Jesus comes for his church, he will take us out of this world, and the worst time in human history designed to bring people to faith will begin to unfold. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you out of tereo from the hour of testing. That's the promise. Now listen, there's never ever, you've got to rationalize, spiritualize so much of the Bible to make the false view that the amillennials has, because there has never been a time when trouble has come on the whole earth. Listen to what Jesus said of this seven-year period, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, they will be cut short. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I'll keep you out of the hour of testing. And then he promises in Revelation 3.11, as he does with every church, he who has an ear, let him hear, not what he says to the church, but to the churches. He is not giving this promise just to the church at Philadelphia, 
But every true Bible-believing church, yes, even the people at Community Bible Church, what a magnificent thing. So here's the slide again, the big picture. We're in the day of the Lord right now. It mimics a biblical day. A biblical day goes from sundown to sundown. We're in the shadows right now, and it's going to get very dark after the rapture takes place. And it will be the darkest seven years the world has ever known. And then Jesus will come. And in Malachi, his second coming, he's likened to the S-U-N. The S-O-N is called the S-U-N. And it will be a bright and glorious day for a thousand years. But we will study it in Revelation 20, how it will get dark again, right at the end of the thousand years. So it mimics a biblical day. So first, he comes for his church in the rapture. Don't confuse the rapture with the revelation, with the unveiling. Then he comes back with his church, literally to the earth. Look at verse 14. We're almost done. Hang in there. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Notice it does not say the army, but the armies. Circle the word S there on army. The armies, indicating there is more than one group. Who's included? The church, the body of Christ. God's holy angels, they'll form an army of sorts. And tribulation saints, those who were martyred, the millions during the time of the tribulation, they'll all come back. And the emphasis here is on the clothing. We studied it last time in verse 8, so I'll not spend any time on it. They're coming back in fine linen, white and clean. The point is that God is coming back, and when He comes back, He's not just bringing a choir, He is bringing a victorious army. He is going to take all those armies of the world that have amassed themselves for the battle of the Armageddon, and He is going to crush them in a moment's time. That's what the Bible teaches. Every eye will see Him, and God's people that have been trampled, that have been persecuted, that have been mocked and muddied, they will come back in fine linen, white and clean, and God will fulfill the promise that He gave, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, we're told, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. The transportation of this conquering king will be a white stallion. But not only will he be on a white stallion, we too will be on white horses. It's a marvelous truth. It is a great truth. You say, I've never ridden a horse. I'm afraid to ride one. You won't be on this day, I promise. If you've never ridden a day before, you'll be able to ride on this day. People sometimes call me on the Bible line, Tuesdays at 11 if you're interested, wagp.net, a little commercial. They say, well, there'll be animals in heaven. Of course, look at it. These are horses coming from heaven. We know there'll be horses in heaven. We know there'll be dogs in heaven. I'm not sure about cats, but dogs, you know. And the armies which in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What a majestic, stirring sight and sound that will be. I remember driving across the United States as a single man from Massachusetts to Colorado as I was working for a Christian organization. And there in the middle of the country, all of these wild Mustangs, 
Masses of them were galloping. I just had to stop my car and look. And the sound of those mighty horses going across the plains was absolutely majestic. Millions and millions of God's people and God's armies will come as we will rule and reign with Christ. Finally, now beyond his appearance and his armies, I want you to see the armament, the armament of the coming king. Notice in verse 15, it's rather chilling. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So John, of course, has already mentioned this sharp sword coming out of his mouth. We've already studied it in detail. And when we looked at it in the other passage, we saw that this was not a literal sword, but a symbolic sword. There's not a literal sword coming out of Christ's mouth, like I've seen in some grotesque pictures, but it's much like the rod of iron. He doesn't have a literal rod of iron, but he is going to keep the nations in line during the time of the great tribulation. And so the word of God is symbolized in Scripture by the sword of the Spirit. And by the way, you see Scripture interpreting Scripture, whereby you know that this is symbolic and that it symbolizes the power of Christ's Word. On this exact same day, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8 says, Then that lawless one, meaning the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. These are not buccaneers spitting swords. This sword refers to the power and the authority of Christ as the sovereign king. Listen to Isaiah 11 and verse 4. You might want to put that in the margin next to verse 15. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So John writes, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is Messiah's sword. It speaks of his absolute power. And all you need to do is remember Revelation 1.1, that in the opening verse of this book, he said this book is being communicated. The King James has signified. I like that. Signified. It's being given in signs. And so our job is to find out what does this sign mean, and then you literally believe what it means. And five times in the Revelation, John emphasizes this sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth as speaking of the breath and the power and the authority of his word that comes. Listen, he's not coming back to Christianize the nations of this world. He is not coming back to put his spirits his spirit in the governments of this world. He is initially coming back to judge the world, and he will come with a rod of iron. And this judgment will be swift. It will be complete. Murder will no longer be tolerated. Rape will be forever stopped, ever before it begins. All adulteries and fornications will cease. The LGBTQ movement will absolutely be crushed. Every abortion will forever end. He will come with a rod of iron, and he will rule and reign in righteousness. And as we will see, as we will see next time, the first generation that will enter this thousand-year reign will be all believers because Christ will separate every unbeliever from this kingdom. You must be born again. But there will be people who survive the great tribulation who will enter into the tribulation in their natural bodies. And they will have children and grandchildren and they'll live protracted periods of time like the days before the great flood. 
And God has children, but He has no grandchildren. You may have believing parents. That doesn't make you saved. You have to make a personal decision for Jesus. And not everyone will make a personal decision on this day. And we will see the final revelation when it gets dark again and unbelievers at the end of the thousand years will go against Christ. And we will see how that is absolutely beyond a question of a doubt demands a pre-tribulational rapture. Look at verse 16. We'll finish with this. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And again, this is not some tattoo. He has his monogrammed robe draped over his thigh, and on it are the greatest names, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the two titles that Moses ascribes to Yahweh, to God the Father in Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is God of gods, and the Lord of Lords, the great, the almighty, the awesome God. And these titles are given to Jesus, Malek Hamalekim. He is the King of Kings, Adonai Ha-Adonai, that is Lord of Lords. He will be the visual manifestation of the Godhead and all of the presidents and all of the dictators and all of the kings and all of the rulers will bow down and affirm that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will see His sovereignty and His deity expressed across this planet. Praise God. Monogrammed on this robe is simply that he is the supreme cook king and he is the greatest Lord. And he is not like Pilate said, the, simply the king of the Jews. No, here it affirms he is the king of all kings. He is the king of the universe. And one of these days, we don't deserve it. Jesus, after the rapture, when we're in heaven, he'll say, mount up. Get on your horse. We're coming back to the earth and you are coming back with me. What a great and magnificent and glorious day that we will study further next time. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications quickly. Number one, ask yourself, do you live with the expectation that the king is coming to judge? Do you live with that expectation? Listen, he came, Isaiah 53, as a suffering servant. But Yeshua Messiah is coming again as a sovereign king. He is coming in righteousness to wage war. He will judge, and all of the ambitions and prides and power expressions of this world will be put down. And I know that may seem un-American. People say, well, God is too loving to judge the world. No, not at all. He is too good not to punish the world. God is a righteous judge. The Bible says he is too pure to look with his eyes upon evil. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You say, oh, Pastor Carl, I thought God is a God of love. He is. He is infinite love, but he is also eternal wrath. And if you preach the love of God to the exclusion of the wrath of God, then you've not given the whole message. And if you preach the wrath of God to the exclusion of the love of God, you've not given the whole message. Now, each half of the truth is absolutely essential. But if you take part of the truth and you make it the whole truth, if all you do is preach the love of God to the exclusion of the wrath of God, then you have a Joel Olstein God, a God that he made in his own image, another Jesus, to use Paul's words. God is a God of love. 
And if you want to have mercy and grace, you can find it today. God never says next month, next year, next decade. He always says today because tomorrow may be too late for some of us. But if you trample under your feet the precious blood of Christ by ignoring what Jesus did for you, then you are going to meet God in His eternal wrath. Now listen, do you have that expectation? If you're saved and you have that expectation, then you should be warning people. You should be compassionate that someone warned you such that you believe, and you should be warning others. And what an opportunity we have even this week with VBS. Secondly, do you live with the expectation that the King is coming? Listen, nothing needs to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. The second coming is a prophecy-driven event, but Jesus could come today. Jesus said that we are to occupy until He comes, and Scripture plainly teaches that when He comes, there will be some Christians who will be ashamed. Listen to what John wrote in his first epistle. And now, little children, he's writing to believers, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. The Bible teaches that there will be some of God's people that will shrink away in shame. Now, understand, all believers are accepted in the beloved. You can't do anything to make God love you any more. You can't do anything to make God love you any less. He loves you in Christ in John 17 as much as His own Son. We are all equally accepted if you've been saved. But accepted doesn't mean that you're acceptable. And if you have a compromised lifestyle this morning, you say it's just a little small thing. It's a small thing that leads you to bigger things and will wipe out your Christian testimony. Paul says, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Look, I don't want to shrink away in shame, but everywhere I look, I have encouragement. When I look back, I look back at Golgotha, and I see the incredible price that was paid for me. When I look within, I, I sense the Spirit who bears witness with my spirit that the love of the Spirit has been poured out in my heart, that He's my helper, He is my teacher, He assures me, He comforts me, He helps me to pray when I don't even know how I ought to. When I look around, I see my brothers and sisters in Christ who want to encourage me. But when I look ahead, I see Jesus someday coming back from heaven. And John will write, everyone, everyone, who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Are you living with the expectation that the king is coming finally? Do you know this king? Listen, the biggest shock day is coming when millions of people who think they know Jesus will hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me. And we are living in a day where we live in a world that is covered over with phony, plastic, cardboard Christians, pseudo-Christians, who have never, ever been born again. Now, Jesus will first come in the rapture so that you can come back to earth with him. But listen, if you don't know that you know that you know, you should settle it today. And if you need help, you come down this aisle during the invitation and I'll help you so that you can know Jesus is Lord. Now, Father, we thank you this morning for your word that is true, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that as your people, we not only know what has happened in the past, but you've given us the end game. Thank you that we are on the winning side 
May we have compassion in our heart this week for those that we will encounter. We can't win everyone, but we can win someone. So help us to carry around in our bodies, as Paul did, the death of Christ, the gospel of Jesus. We ask it now in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. To listen again to today's message, The Coming of the King, use the Search the Scriptures app for mobile devices or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV55. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow we begin a look at the collapse at Armageddon. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. (music) 